Good morning and greet you in Jesus' name. Um, feeling pretty at home on this pulpit up here with these boots up here. We were trying to figure out if that's mud or manure worn, but uh, we won't go into the details. So, All right. If you would, turn with me to uh, Ecclesiastes 12 this morning to get us started. This is a very familiar um, passage of Scripture, and I don't intend to read all of these verses. But the, uh, the writer here in Ecclesiastes, he starts out with an admonition to um, especially young people to remember the Creator, your Creator in the days of your youth. And then he goes on and he describes why you should do that. And, and he, his basic, his basic um, argument is, is because the day is going to come <clears throat> that being a youth is going to look pretty attractive because when you read through the kind of the parabolic, symbolic language he uses and um, how all your senses kind of dull and things just aren't quite as exciting as you age as they were at one time. And then he gets down to verse 6 and he talks about the silver cord being loose, the golden bowl being broken, the pitcher broken at the fountain, the wheel broken at the cistern. And I'm not going to get into what all that could possibly represent, but we have the word broken a lot, all right? So things are really breaking down. And then he says in uh, verse 7, and this is the verse I'd like to kind of hone in on, he says, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit shall return unto God who gave it. This morning, I would like to uh, explore with uh, you for a few minutes what we call the intermediate state of man. Now, this maybe is a little bit of an interesting subject, and I'm not sure I ever really heard um, this this uh, explored uh, very deeply, at least that I can remember, but I'm going to do it this morning. And, and the reason I'm doing this is because a little over a year ago, I had a person ask me uh, what I believed happens to a person after he dies. And this person had some ideas on this. And uh, his idea was that when a person dies, he is no different than a dog. He lays in the ground, totally oblivious, um, basically asleep, unconscious, whatever you want to call it, um, until the resurrection, and then he's resurrected. And, and from that point on, there was even a bit of divergence on our beliefs. Um, he believed that... The righteous are raised to everlasting life, and the the uh, ungodly are um, annihilated. They are burnt. They don't spend an eternity in hell, but rather they are annihilated, and they are no more. So we had quite a difference of opinion on some of these things. But he, he truly was asking me for my understanding of this, and I have to admit to my shame, I was not prepared to give him a very good explanation of why I believed what I believed. I would suggest, or I would suspect that you, like me, probably, if somebody would say, where do you expect to go after you die, you'd probably say, well, I expect to go to heaven. What does that mean? And why do you say that? Like, what verse would you point to in the Bible that says that when you die, you go to heaven or you go to hell? So, um, you know, that sounded, suddenly my knee-jerk answer sounded very pathetic. Why, why do you think that? Well, I don't know. I mean, where do I find that? And so I began to grasp at, you know, uh, different reasons I think this. But again, it kind of fell flat whenever... You know, in face of argument, I, w I wasn't doing very well. So at some point, I wanted to sit down and explore this. Why do I say what I do? And 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 the thing that I say is it really factual? Is it is it biblical what I say? And so we're going to do this this morning. This um, my personal study has become a sermon for me, and so you get to you get to um, to take part in this. And I'd be I'd be curious as we move along. If what you believe or, or what we discover the Bible says, if that's how we would collectively feel about this. There's, there's, there's an important thing here that I want to just um, uh, point out here in the beginning. Just because a person believes a thing does not make it so. Okay? I mean, I know that's 
kind of fundamental, but it's true. The atheist would say when he dies, he is just like the dog that returns to the dust. That's it. That's the end right there. But just because the atheist believes that does not make it so. The Buddhist believes he's reincarnated. Well, that doesn't, just because he believes that, it doesn't mean that. The Catholic believes there's purgatory. But again, just because he believes that doesn't make it so. I think I've made my point. I'm going to read to you out of the uh, Christian Fundamentals, the 1921 Christian Fundamentals of the Mennonite Church, and here's what it says about the intermediate state of man. And this is what we would ascribe to. This is what we say we believe. It's very short, just a couple sentences. We believe that in the interval between the death between death and the resurrection, the righteous will be with Christ in a state of conscious bliss and comfort, but that the wicked will be in a place of torment in a state of conscious suffering and despair. And it gives one, two, three, four, five, six verses after that to um, support that statement. As I study this, I, I largely agree with this um, with this statement about the intermediate state of man. I do have one small question about one small piece of this statement, but I'm not ready to take on the 1921 Christian fundamentals. But I'll explain to you why I have one question about it as we move along. But I, I basically believe this statement to be accurate. Looking here at this verse we just read, I think this is probably the most concise Old Testament, at least Old Testament verse that we have, and maybe in the, in the entire Bible, about just succinctly putting down in a small sentence what happens when a person dies. His body returns to the dust. His spirit returns to God who gave it. And, and now let's just stop for a second and, and let's, let's remind ourselves what we are. As people, we are body, we are soul, and we are spirit. The body is the part that we see that's made of dust. It's the part of us that God formed and he breathed into us. Okay, now here's where I think we get a little confused, or at least I often do. We say, some, or at least I sometimes think of it, that when I die, my soul goes to God. That's not really the correct way to put it if you think about it in biblical terms. What the soul of man is is it is the part of me that is alive and unique. It's the part of me that makes me Dwight. Whether you like me or not, that's who I am, all right? So each of us has, um, you know, unique. I not only recognize you physically, but I, if, I, I also recognize you because of the way you respond to things, the way you are, your personality, those kinds of things. That's the soul of you, okay? But then there's a, and, and I want to point something else out. It, in Genesis 2-7, it says that God formed man out of, the, out of the dust of the ground. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Okay, in Hebrew, this word is something like nephesh, okay, and it basically means breath of life. Now, just a few verses later, it says, And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air, and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them, and whatsoever Adam called them... Okay, I'm sorry, I misread that. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. Now, that that living creature in that verse... And living soul in the few verses before that it talks about Adam are the same word, nephesh. So in some way you could say that an animal has a soul, if you will. And, and if you understand what the word soul means, that makes sense because you don't confuse a deer with a frog. You just don't. Not only are they physically different, their, their personality or their frogality or whatever you want to call it is different than you know, the horse or whatever. So it's, it's, it's different. There's the soul part of it. Now, the spirit, the spirit part of us is what makes us different from the frog and the deer and the cow. That's the part that connects us to God and makes us lower than the angels, but, but higher than creation, as we were looking at this morning. That's the part that connects and belongs to God. And that's what Solomon here says in Ecclesiastes, 
returns to God after the death of men. So, if the Spirit returns to God, where it where does it go? Where where does that go? Does the Bible give us any clues on this? And I think it does, and I would like to explore that with you this morning. Alright, so I have a lot of verses, and I'm not going to take the time to turn to them, but if you're taking notes, jot them down because I think you'll find this helpful if you wish to review this uh, later. Um, and I think, actually, uh, being we live in a, in a time where there's much confusion on these things, I think knowing some of this is actually helpful for us. Okay, so I'm going to read a few verses, and I, I'm going to, um, I want you to pay attention to some of these words. So in, in Genesis 37, we have the account where Jacob's brothers, um, we know the story, they, they pretended they killed J- Joseph, and they went back to Jacob, and they said, hey, we found this coat, we think it belongs to Joseph, uh, do you think so? Um, and Joseph, Jacob says, sure, it did. And they said, well, you know, he must have died, you know, whatever. And it says that Jacob just really grieved over this. And here's how it reads in verse Genesis 37, 35. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I will go down to the grave unto my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Now, I want you to think about this word grave. He said, I will go down to the grave. What did he mean? What did he say in Hebrew when he said, I will go down to the grave? Did he mean I will lay in my, you know, my, my casket in the ground somewhere? That word actually is the word sheol, which in Hebrew is, means the place of the dead. All right. So he said, I will, I will go to the place of the dead mourning, he says. All right, now if we go to number 16, where we have the account of Dathan and Abiram, and to condense that story down, Moses, Moses separated them and their families, and he says this. He said, if the Lord make a new thing, and the earth open her mouth and swallow them up, and all that appertain to them, and they go down into the pit quickly, then you shall understand that these men have provoked the Lord. Now I want you to think about the word pit. Where was the pit? What was the pit? In Hebrew, same word as Jacob whenever he said, I'm going to go to my grave. It's the word sheol. All right? David wrote a psalm of lament in Psalm 116, and there's a verse in there that goes like this. The sorrows of death compassed me, and the pains of hell got hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. And now you're, I'm sure you're catching on to this. The word hell there is the same word, sheol, okay, the place of the dead. Okay, so, so let's stop here. We have three verses, three different words, grave, pit, and hell, and they all can be interpreted. All right, now I want to point out one other account. In 1 Samuel 28, this is the account where Saul's coming to the end of his life. The Philistines are, are fighting him. He is not getting a word from the Lord, and he's desperate to hear something from the Lord. So he goes to that witch there, if you remember, And he talks with the witch, and he says, I want you to bring Samuel up so I can talk to Samuel. I need a word from the Lord. And so this this woman calls up Samuel, and you remember how she freaked out, as it it were, over this person that came up. She said, I see gods descending up out of the earth. Now I'm going to read to you um, what Saul said to her. And Saul said unto her, What form is he of? And she, the witch, said, an old man cometh up, and he is covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel, and he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed himself. Now, Samuel and Saul had a little conversation. And in verse 19, Samuel says to Saul, he says, Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow thou and thy sons shall be with me. Okay, so now if we stop and consider all of these verses that we've read, we have, we have Jacob, we have Samuel, we have Saul and his sons, we have Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, all going to the same place. And this place is Sheol. Okay? Samuel was a prophet of God. Saul was anything but a prophet of God. He had turned out to be quite a, quite a wicked man toward, toward the end. 
And Saul said, or I'm sorry, Samuel said to him, you will be with me tomorrow about this time. Heading here just a little bit. There is never a mention of hell as we understand it in today's vernacular as the place of fire and torment. There is come across the word hell in the Old Testament. I think I'm right in saying that should be translated as the place of the departed or Sheol as we would as we would say it. And neither is the word heaven as we think of it referred to specifically. Uh, there's some there's some uh, connotations of it I would say and I'll give you two of them. Um, in Psalm 23, David talks about dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. Well, one could certainly understand that as being a place that we would perceive as heaven. In Psalm 73, uh, 24, it reads like this, Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. And again, I would say, you know, I would say you could understand that as a place that we would think of as heaven. But it is, it's veiled references. Uh, to it, and not specifically, I don't know if the, if the people that read that in the Old Testament understood it as heaven the way we would think of it. But I, I guess ultimately what I'm trying to say is, to the Old Testament reader, the Old Testament understanding was, when I die, I am buried, and my departed spirit goes to Sheol. Whether I'm good, whether I'm bad, that's where it goes, the place of the pardon. All right, now let's turn to um, let's turn to um, Luke 16, if you will. We're going to go to the New Testament now. And if I could have one of the ushers kindly bring me a cup of water up here, I would greatly appreciate that. Um, in Luke 16, we have this familiar passage of um, of the rich man and Lazarus, and this is probably one of the plainest. Uh, teachings of the afterlife that we have in the Bible. And I'm not gonna, again, I'm not going to take the time to read it because it's very familiar, but I think, um, I think we can pull this from memory enough to, to understand what's happening here. And I want to say this. Um, some people would say that this is a parable. Thanks, Jared. I, I'm inclined to think it's not a parable, okay? But let's just suppose for a minute that it is a parable. Let's just say, all right, we'll, we'll give you that. It's a parable, not, not an actual account. Even if it's a parable, I would say it would be out of character for Jesus to give such an outlandish story if, if it's not even close to correct. Like if it's just some Greek myth or something, why would Jesus use it? And, and stated in such a factual, in such factual terms. I, and, and so I, I, um, whether you want to call this a parable or not, I do not. Um, I would say it still is not proper to think that Jesus would talk so outlandishly if, if there's nothing even close to right about this story here. The other thing I would say is there was not one person that we have record of here that disputed what Jesus had to say. Nobody argued with him. Um, yeah, I think everybody kind of understood it as uh, just the way Jesus put it here. I think the Old Testament Jew would have, would have understood death much this way. But what we can see here is that um, there was two places that these two men were carried. Lazarus was carried to Abraham's bosom. And, and I want you to just make a little note of that. It doesn't say he went to heaven. It says he went to Abraham's bosom. All right. So just just think about that. And it says the rich man was in hell. Okay, again, let's talk about this thing of hell. Was the rich man in the lake of fire? Well, again, the King James doesn't do us very much justice here on this word hell. In the, in the New Testament, the word hell is, is translated from three different Greek words. In this passage, the word is translated from the word Hades. The word Hades is used 11 times in the New Testament, and every time it is translated hell, okay? But it, but if you'd have been listening to Jesus in those days, uh, he would have used the word Hades. He wouldn't have used the word hell. He would have said Hades. Hades in the Greek means the place of departed spirits. It's the same Hebrew. It's the same thing as the Hebrew word Sheol that we were talking about just a few minutes ago. 
So the rich man is in Hades. Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom. Both of these are in a state of consciousness. Both of them could communicate. Both of them were aware that they were there because of how they had approached life on the other side of the grave. All right? They understood that because the, the rich man said, if you could go back and talk to my brothers and convince them of a few things, maybe they won't end up where I am. So he understood. He got the connection. Okay. Now let's, um, let's, uh, think about for a minute, uh, two other, two other places where the word hell is used that it is not interpreted as Hades. In Acts, I'm sorry. Sorry, I, I got ahead of myself. I want, to, I want to show you one other passage where it is interpreted as Hades. In Acts 2, whenever Peter is preaching about Jesus and how he was risen from the dead, and he's trying to convince the Jews that um, Jesus was indeed the Son of God, he quotes David. And in his quoting of David, he said, God said that he would not leave Jesus' soul in hell. Okay? Now... It would be, it would be ludicrous to think that Jesus spent three days in the lake of fire. Uh, that's not correct. That word there is Haiti. It's the same place that the rich man was in Luke 16. Again, uh, another place that Hades is used is in Matthew 16:18, and I found this very interesting. This is a verse we often quote about uh, Peter in the church. It says, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, I have always thought of that verse as meaning that the devil and his minions, all of hell, even though it unleashes itself against the church, it can't prevail against the church. Or if you want to think about it the other way, uh, the, the, the church is attacking hell, the gates of hell. Either way, I think of it as a, this spiritual warfare between um, uh, Satan and his minions and the righteous. Okay, this, this thing, uh, this spiritual warfare somewhat. However, that word hell there is actually the word Hades, the place of the dead. Now, if you think of it that way, it almost begins to make more sense to me. Think about how many righteous people have been persecuted and died because of their faith, because of righteousness, for righteousness' sakes, as, as Jesus puts it. And Jesus here says the gates of hell, or death, can't prevail against the church. And we, and we understand that from uh, history, that the more Christians were martyred, the more the church grew. The gates of Hades, death, could not prevail against the church. Makes very much sense in that con in that context. All right, now let's um, let's turn to um, a verse in Matthew twenty three and verse thirty three. And here we have another uh, use of the word hell. And this is where Jesus says, "Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell?" All right, now we have a different Greek word. Here now we have the word Gehenna. The word Gehenna, uh, it, it means exactly that, a place of burning, a place of torment, a place of, uh, a place that nobody wants to be. All right? And interestingly enough, it was a term that was used for a place outside of Jerusalem in Jesus' day called the Valley of Hinnom. And the Valley of Hinnom, would be a little like if Dodge County Dump, or over here in Steele County, if they just lit a fire to it, and they just left it burn and burn and burn. And you would take your trash there, and everybody would take their trash there, and they would throw it in there, and it would just burn. It was a pet, perpetual place of stink and rot and ugliness, and it was a place that the evil kings of Israel and Judah had set up um, idol worship and, and had... Um, had uh, offered human sacrifice and so on. It was a place of disgust to the um, to the Jewish person. That was also referred to as Gehenna in Jesus' day. So the 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 uh, again the common listener to Jesus talking there in Matthew twenty three would have understood that he's not talking about the place the rich man was. He's now talking about another place. He's talking about Gehenna. 
Again, in Matthew 5, there's just another illustration. If thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into Gehenna. All right? The place of everlasting punishment. Now, there's one other time where hell is used, that it is neither Gehenna nor Hades. And that's in 2 Peter 2.4. It says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. And I didn't write the, didn't read the rest, write the rest of that on my notes, but because I, I just wanted to emphasize that word hell. Where were these angels that were cast out delivered to? Well, this is the only time that hell is translated from the word Tartarus in the Greek, and that means the lowest part of Hades. And the understanding would, would have been that they were actually in literal hell. They were in the lake of fire, proceeding when the unrighteous and the rest of Satan's angels will end up there. We're, we don't have any details on that. We're left to speculate how did these angels, when did these angels go there? Was it when the Lucifer and his angels fell uh, at the rebellion? Was it whenever it talks about in Genesis, the sons of God married the daughters of man? Were they the sinful angels? We're left to wonder on that. But Peter says, there is a contingent of angels that are in this place called Tartarus, or hell, everlasting fire. It's interesting to me that in Matthew 41, I'm sorry, Matthew 25, 41, when Jesus is talking about the judgment, he says to those on the left, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So this place is already occupied with some of the, some of the devil's angels, it would seem. So, as we've determined, we have three different words in, in Greek that the English word hell is used in the New Testament. So if we read the New Testament casually... And we think about hell as always being the place of fire and torment, we will likely become confused. Our theology will get a little mixed up because it doesn't always mean that. And perhaps this has led to some of the misunderstanding that we have about especially what happens to a person that is unrighteous that dies. All right, so now let's look for some clues that we have in the New Testament about the intermediate state of, from the details of Jesus' death. And I'm just going to quickly just give you a few different verses, and then we're going to put them together. In Matthew 12:40, Jesus tells his audience, For as Jonah was, in, was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's what he says. He said, I will be in the heart of the earth. Then when he's on the cross and the thief and him are having the conversation and the thief tells Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom, Jesus, it says, it is recorded, said to him, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. So he told people one time, I'm going to be in the heart of the earth. He tells the thief, you'll be with me in paradise. Peter, when he was preaching to the Jews, going back to that again, He's, he's quoting David, and he said that God said, Thou will not leave his soul in hell. All right? So again, this hell word comes up, and that should be again translated as Hades. Now, in 1 Peter 3.19, we have a little bit of an idea of what happened when Jesus died, what he did, what he spent his time doing in 1 Peter 3.19 and 1 Peter 4.6. It says that he went and he preached into the, unto the spirits that were in prison. Now, again, we're short on details, but the understanding we would have from that is that those three days and nights that Jesus spent in the heart of the earth, that he spent in Hades, he spent preaching to the souls that was in Hades. All right? That's, that's the way we would understand it. Now, there's where we have to stop, because anything beyond that is speculation. There are some people that believe that he preached to all the souls that were in Hades, and that if you were an unrighteous person, you had never heard of Jesus, you were just an ungodly Philistine, and you were in Hades, 
Jesus comes down there and he preaches to you and you have the opportunity to accept Jesus in Hades. Now, that's nothing but speculation. Others believe that he went and he simply presented the gospel to the righteous that were in Hades, such as Abraham and Jacob and the patriarchs of old, and that they accepted the gospel and made it, they became part of the kingdom of God through that preaching in Hades. But the fact of the matter is, we don't know. We just know he was in Hades for three days and three nights, and he preached while he was there. And that's where we have to leave it. But we have three different passages, and all of them are true. He was in the heart of the earth, he's in Hades, and he is in paradise. All three of those things are correct statements, and Jesus said all of them. So now let's put all these details together. When you put all these details together, you come to a commonly held viewpoint by many people today, and I would say even many of us conservative Mennonites, this is the viewpoint that we would hold to. All right. Now, you're going to have to stay awake and listen because you're going to miss it if you don't. But if you don't care, I guess it doesn't matter. But anyway, just, just saying, this is a little bit hard to connect all these dots, but I'm going, to, I'm going to try to do this for you. So now remember with me that when Jesus rose from the dead and Mary came to him, the Mary was the first person that approached him, he said to Mary, he said, don't touch me because I have not yet ascended to my father. Remember how he said that? He said, don't touch me because I have not yet ascended. All right. A few days or weeks later, he's with Thomas and he invites Thomas to touch him. He says, Thomas, you're, you're a doubter and I invite you to touch the, the prints of my hand and thrust your hand on my side. He's actually inviting him to touch. Okay. What happened between the conversation with Mary and the conversation with Thomas? All right. The thought is that somewhere in that process, he ascended to his father. He took the righteous souls out of Hades and he took them to another place. That is largely based upon the verses in Ephesians 4 where Paul has just a little blip there that it sort of seems out of context a little bit when you read it, but in verse 8 he says, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. So, this, this, this idea, this theory, I guess you'd say, basically says that this, uh, this idea of leaving, leading captivity captive was that Jesus went down to Hades, those captive souls there, and he led them captive, if you will, out of there, and he took them somewhere else. Okay? That's how they, that's how this is put together. Also, we could point to uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul is speaking of his out-of-the-body experience. Okay? And I'm going to read that to you. In, in 1, 2 Corinthians 12, it says, I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. Such an one caught up to the third heaven. All right, now keep that in mind. He's saying, we, we assume this is Paul talking about an experience he had that he didn't even know whether he was in the body or out of the body. But he said, I had this experience and I'm caught up into the third heaven. Now we think of the third heaven as being where God is. That's what we think of. All right, and I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knoweth, how he was caught up into paradise. All right, so the first verse, he says, I was caught up into the third heaven. And now in this verse, speaking of the same experience, he says, I was caught up into paradise. Now, that word paradise is the same word that that Jesus used when he spoke to the thief on the cross, and he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So it would seem here that Paul is saying that in his out-of-the-body experience, he's caught up in the third heavens, and he calls that paradise. Same word that Jesus used. So you're getting the connection. Did paradise move? 
If the thief went to be with Jesus the day he died, and we know that Jesus factually was in the heart of the earth three days, and Jesus called that paradise that day, and now Paul says, I was caught up to paradise, again, I ask the question, did paradise move? Now, to, to complete that theory, if you read in Matthew 27, it says when Jesus died and also when he was resurrected. I had always missed the resurrected part of it. But if you remember, it says that when he, when he died and he was crucified, the veil was rent. And it said many holy people were seen walking around Jerusalem. Uh, one verse later, it said the same thing happened when he was resurrected. That many holy people were seen in Jerusalem. I had always missed that. 51 years of reading the Bible and I missed that. But anyway... Both of them are there, apparently when he died and when he was resurrected. So to complete this theory, the thought is, Jesus resurrects, holy men are seen around Jerusalem, and they're all translocated to paradise. Now, that, that, well, there's one, there's one more verse here I'm going to read that maybe completes it. And that is in, in Paul's reference in 2 Corinthians 5 8. A very, um, off-repeated verse at a funeral and so on. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent with the, from the body and present with the Lord. Okay, so Paul's expectation was when he was no longer in his body, he was going to be in the presence of the Lord. And the thought, the, the way we process this is that the Lord's pleasant presence is in this place called paradise, commonly referred to as heaven for us. So, you, you got, does this theory make any sense? I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's taking a lot of different kind of loose details and bringing them together and saying, all right, Jesus went to Hades, he preaches, at some point after he resurrects, he takes those souls, those righteous souls in Hades, and he translocates them to another place called paradise, and that is in some way in the Lord's presence. It feels like a plausible possibility. But we have to be honest, if, if that is what we believe, we are, we have to fill in some missing blanks. There is no place that it specifically says that that's exactly what happened, that Jesus did just this. It's a, it's a common theory, but it's a little like eschatology. You have to hold your view loosely, because we just, no matter what your viewpoint is, you have, you are forced to fill in some details. So I want to give you another point of view that was historically held by almost all, if not all, of the early church just right after the time of the apostles, what we call the anti-Nacene church fathers. So this view is that Hades, as we understood it and explained it, is still in the heart of the earth. And that there is two compartments. There's a good compartment and there's a bad compartment. And depending on whether you are a righteous person or an unrighteous person, you will go to one or the other. And it's they, they saw it much like Jesus described it in Luke 16, in the rich man and Lazarus story. The difference being that this, this place of righteousness is a place of bliss and happiness and comfort and joy and being with other righteous people. And much the opposite, the place of the unrighteous is a place of fear and darkness and turmoil and and um, suffering. The rich man is even described as being thirsty and so on. If I had the time, I would read to you some of the early church fathers' writings, but I'm not going to take that time. I did research it. It's there. In fact, some of them get quite um, quite detailed in what they believe happens after after we die. And again, I would even say, if that's what they believed, they were filling in some blanks too, because I can't point you to any verse in the Bible that says, yeah, that, that's exactly what happened. But that's what they held to. As a supporting scripture, though, in Revelation 20, where we have the scene of what we call the great white throne judgment, where everybody is raised out of the dead and they stand before God and they are judged, it says that death and hell... Or Hades, death and Hades gave up her dead to be judged. And that includes the good and the bad. Because other passages of scripture, Matthew 25 is a prime one, 
where it talks about the judgment scene, it's the good and the bad that stand before God, and God separates the sheep and the goats, the one go to eternal life, the one go to eternal death, damnation. So that would be probably the most uh, concise verse that would that would lead us to believe in that way, that paradise never really moved, it's still in the heart of the earth. This is the important part, though. No matter where paradise currently is, it is not where we will be when time ends and eternity starts. No matter what, whether it's up, whether it's down, whether it's north or west, southeast, doesn't matter. Where we go after we die is going to be a different place than whenever Jesus comes back and we're all resurrected or those of us that remain here that have never tasted of death will be. And here's some scriptures that, that solidify that. In John 14, 2, very familiar verses, Jesus says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Uh, I'm certain that the disciples understood his coming again as his second coming. John 5, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, and this is important, in which all that are in the graves, all that are in the graves, righteous and unrighteous alike, shall hear his voice, and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. And I could quote other verses, but I'm going to leave it with that. Um, It is clear that when we are raised up out of our graves at the end of time, that we are going to a different place than where where we had been previously. My conclusion is this. I personally do not believe that we have sufficient enough information to conclude beyond reasonable doubt where paradise currently is today. I just don't think, after studying this, that we can dogmatically say that. I will point out several verses here, though, that would indicate and is plausible reason to believe that paradise is somewhere up, okay? In 2 Kings 2, when Elijah was caught up in the whirlwind, and it says those horses and chariots of fire came and got him, it says he was caught up into heaven. All right, he went without dying, we know that. He was caught up into heaven. The only thing I would say there, though, that word heaven is used hundreds of times in the Old Testament, and it basically means sky. It it doesn't necessarily say he was caught up into the third heaven. He was just caught up into the sky. Also, Stephen, in Acts 7, it says that he saw the heaven open. But again, I want to emphasize that word heaven is in the Greek just the word sky. He saw the sky open, and he saw Jesus at God's right hand. And right before he died, he said, Lord, receive my spirit. And and at a quick reading, a quick um, um, process of that, of those verses, one would think that that if that's what Stephen saw, he saw God and Jesus, and he asked God to receive a spirit, that his spirit went up. You would think of it that way. And that's not an unreasonable thing to think. Also, in Revelation 6, 9 to 11, we have a picture there of martyrs that are under the altar, okay? And they're in conversation with God about when he would avenge their bloods or blood on those that dwell on the earth. So we have, we have martyrs somewhere under the altar, and it does say the souls of the martyrs, I do believe, if I, if I remember that right. And what happened there is they were given white robes and they were told to rest for a little season, until their brethren should be killed as they were. So as I as I read over that many times, I always thought of that as the altar being in heaven, the souls are under the altar, and God is there, and they're talking to God and saying, when are you going to avenge our blood on these wicked people on the earth? But when you think through that, and, and I read some commentary on this, there is... There, it is a more, it is more often interpreted that the altar is the earth. So if you think of it that way, and the souls are under the altar, where would the souls be? 
the souls would be in Hades, right? That still does not mean that they don't have some way to communicate to God and, 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 and that sort of thing. Again, I, I don't think we can answer this question conclusively, but that's what I, that's what I read and understood as I, as I studied this. All right, so here is four concluding thoughts as we wrap this message up that I think we need to remember. Number one, and I've said this three times already, but I'm going to say it again. I personally do not believe that we can conclusively determine whether or not Jesus moved paradise out of Hades to a different place. I think we can certainly follow the logic. I don't think it's a flawed view necessarily. But I would say that we need to avoid dogmatism on this subject because if you're talking with somebody that's really wanting the, 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 the book and the verse and the chapter, you're going to run out of steam. You're not going to be able to conclusively determine that. You have to fill in some missing dots. And so there's nothing wrong with saying, this is what I believe, but I think we have to leave it there and say, but you know, I hold that loosely. It may not be that way. I think we lose credibility if we insist that the way that we fill in the blanks is theological dogma rather than a loosely held view. All right, number two. Our understanding of this intermediate state or this place we call heaven, as I thought about it, I think has been as much influenced by human imagination as by scripture. And I'll tell you why I think that. Yesterday, after I studied this sermon, I went out and I was clipping a little pasture, and I had my um, my iPad set to um, uh, a group that I like to listen to, singing, and their songs were about heaven. And as I listened to that, I was like, that's why we think about heaven the way we do. We sing songs like, I'll fly away. Well, you don't fly down, you fly up, right? Um, we, 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 we talk about... Um, the heavenly parade. Are we actually going to promenade in a heavenly parade? Is that going to happen? Do we expect to be up there in a parade? Well, I, I, we don't have evidence that that's going to happen, but it's it's fun to think about, isn't it? Um, even even the hymn that we have in our books here, uh, Shall We Meet Beyond the River? What, is there literally a river that we cross when we go to heaven? I doubt it. I don't think there is. But see, we take symbolism. You know, we take the, the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, crossing the Jordan, and going into Canaan, and we and we see wonderful symbolism there. And so we so we say, well, shall we meet beyond the river? Boy, it's it's fun to think that way, right? Swing low, sweet chariot, because you want the chariot to take you back up again. You don't you don't tell the, the chariot to come low and then just keep going lower. No, he goes back up. On and on I could go. Even this Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim goes to the celestial city. Well, that's that's depicted in Pilgrim's Progress as heaven. Faithful, when he died in Vanity Fair, I think it was faithful, it said the angels were there and they, they took his spirit and took him to heaven, to the celestial city. See, see, those things inform how we think about the intermediate state of man. All right, number three. Likely paradise, or heaven as we call it, is so otherworldly that we cannot properly in our humanness think of it, in our human thinking. John, John struggled with this. When he was in, having his visions there of, of uh, heaven, we'll call it, the New Jerusalem, he just kept saying, it was like this, and it was like that, and I saw something like this. He just ran out of words. And Paul, in his out-of-the-body experience, he said, I saw things that I can't even talk about. So I won't talk about it. He doesn't. He doesn't talk about it because he said, I can't. He was constrained in his humanness to talk about it. I guess what I am cautioning us is that while I don't think imagination is bad, because that's all we have to work with is our human imagination, I don't think it's bad for us to think about a small child being in Jesus' arms I don't think we should let that inform our theology. Okay, when we when we begin to speak theologically, um, we're not going to just say, "Oh, I just believe that Grandpa's beside Jesus right now." No, no, that's not really. We're not getting that out of anything here. That's our imagination at work now. 
good imagination. I think it's righteous, but it's our imagination. Another observation that I want to just hit here, nobody in Scripture that died and came back to life ever spoke about what happened. We have Lazarus. We have the widow of Nain's son. We have Jairus' daughter. We have Jesus. Not one of them spoke one twit about what happened to them in between the time they died till they came back to life. For some reason, I feel like that's noteworthy. For some reason, that was not important enough to, to, to get into the Holy Scriptures. And furthermore, just to build on that, I am not quite sure how I personally feel about our current generation's infatuation with the afterlife. There is many books, many videos, many stories that you can pick up and read or look at in today's world about people that had near-death experiences. They died and they were in heaven for 30 minutes. And here's what they saw. I see this on YouTube sometimes whenever I'm scrolling through for something. You know, somebody will say, this guy spent 30 minutes in heaven and here's what he saw. To tell you the truth, I've never looked at him because I just, I'm just like, I don't know if I believe that. I don't know if I even want to get involved in that myself. Um, and here's why. You know, we need to be careful. If, 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 um, Satan can come as an angel of light. It seems to me that if a person didn't really die, he had a near-death experience, but he didn't die, all right? Could, could Satan use that as, as trickery, you know, to, to uh, portray something that really isn't so? I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not going to dispute someone's testimony, but I would just say that let's be careful that we're not derailed on reality because of somebody's near-death experience. And finally, we are left with relatively scant detail about the intermediate state for some reason. For some reason, God chose not to reveal a lot about this to us. However, we can rest in the fact that the resurrection of the body is what we are really looking forward to. And I'm going to end with this verse out of 1 Thessalonians. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord.